You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and an LLS volunteer. I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode where we'll be discussing updates in CAR T-cell therapy, including CAR T-cell structure and manufacturing, approved indications, future directions, clinical trials, managing toxicities, and other practical issues, such as determining what's really the best option for patients facing really serious diseases. I just want to take a minute to reflect just how exciting it is now to have a number of options. And with that in mind, I'm so pleased to have with us Dr. Karen Jacobson, who's an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and medical director of the Immune Effector Cell Therapy Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Karen, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I can talk for hours about CAR T-cell therapy, so this is an easy job. All right, super. Well, let me ask this question to begin with. If you were to design, if you had all these tremendous abilities and could design sort of the most effective therapy with the least side effects, which is, you know, in many ways, obviously what we and our patients want in treating patients with blood cancers, what would be the key elements of that therapy? Well, I think principally, obviously, it would be a high rate of complete response and a high rate of durable complete response. So a definitive therapy for people that would lead to the resolution of their blood cancers and lack of relapse. On the flip side of that, of course, you want to do that without unacceptable toxicity. And I think you really want to do that with a therapy that doesn't require indefinite treatment as well. So mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. a short-lived therapy with a good safety profile and obviously first and foremost, high efficacy. So along those lines, I mean, we've really relied for so many years primarily on chemotherapy to do that. Just your view as we look at now and toward the future, can immune therapy very broadly replace that? What would you imagine? Yeah, this is an excellent question. So when I talk to my patients, I usually describe chemotherapy as a therapy that really works from the inside of the cell out, whereas I think of immunotherapies as working from the outside of the cell in. And so chemotherapy is really, the goal is to get them inside the cell into the DNA of the cell where it can cause enough damage to lead to cell death our cancer cells have evolved a number of mechanisms to resist that form of cell death. And that leads to relapses of cancers after effective therapy or lack of response to effective therapies. So immune therapies, on the other hand, really can be very effective in patients who have not responded or are resistant to chemotherapy because they work by a totally different mechanism. And so it requires the recognition of the cancer cell from the outside to activate the immune system or cells of the immune system to launch an immune attack against the cancer cell very much in the same way that our immune system launches an attack against a cell that's infected by a virus, for instance. 
And we know that immune therapies can work for a number of different reasons. So, I mean, one is that some cancers actually can be surveyed by the immune system and can actually spontaneously regress because of an immune response. The other is because of the efficacy of allogeneic stem cell transplant, where we replace the host immune system with that of the immune system from a donor, where that new immune system can survey the host for recurrences of cancers, specifically blood cancers that we're talking about right now, and lead to lack of relapse over time, even for cancers that were bound to relapse with other effective therapies. So we know this can work, but of course, the question is, how do you target the immune system against the cancer cells and then not against the healthy cells of the body? Because we certainly don't want to do that. And then how do we sort of modulate the immune effect of these immune cells so that they don't unleash too much toxicity? So, yeah, and that is the question, isn't it? And a very, very challenging one. There's a spectrum of different therapies. And let me sort of list them and get this sense from you of what holds this together and what separates it. There is, I suspect, our own immune surveillance before getting cancer that I think probably eliminates many cancers. There's some surveillance after people are treated for a blood cancer, getting down to minimal residual disease and then hopefully not relapsing. There's auto-transplant, allo-transplant, CAR-T therapy, off-the-shelf CAR-T therapy, checkpoint inhibitors. What are some of the commonalities between these interventions and what are some of the differences? Yeah, I mean, so what I think they all have in common is that they are empowering the immune system, whether it be the immune system that is derived from donor stem cells or whether it's the patient's own immune system to recognize cancer cells as foreign and as the cells that shouldn't be there and to eliminate them again the same way that the immune system would eliminate a cell infected by a virus or some other pathogen that shouldn't be there. Some of the key differences between them, I mean, obviously for the donor stem cell transplant, the allogeneic stem cell transplant, obviously we collect stem cells which give rise to a new immune system once they engraft in the patient and that from a healthy donor. And so that's a big difference compared to checkpoint inhibition or CAR T-cells, where really, principally, we are using the immune system of the host or the patient themselves to fight the cancer. So the idea behind a donor stem cell transplant is that the new immune system will be sufficiently different from the cancer cell just because it comes from a different individual, and that will be enough to lead to the elimination of those cancer cells. On the flip side, checkpoint inhibitors and autologous CAR T-cell therapies really rely on sort of a retraining of the host immune system to be able to recognize cancer cells as foreign and to attack them for elimination. So with checkpoint inhibitors, this takes the brakes off of the host immune system. So sometimes our cancer cells uh, can interact with cells of our immune system like T-cells and inhibit them from launching an immune attack. And so drugs uh, like PDD1 inhibitors block that. That interaction and therefore the T cells are then re-energized or can become activated to fight the cancer cell. And then with CAR T cells, autologous CAR T cells, where the T cells are derived from the patient themselves, those T cells are then sent to a lab where they're genetically modified. So they now express a new receptor on their surface that has specificity for a tumor antigen or a tumor protein. 
And when they're reinfused, they bind to the tumor cell and then launch an immune attack on that tumor cell. There's one last uh, sort of class of therapies that you alluded to or, or mentioned in your list where the donor-derived CAR T-cells are the off-the-shelf CAR T-cells. And those are CAR T-cells that are actually derived from healthy donor T-cells where the T-cell receptor from the healthy donor T-cells are edited out and the chimeric antigen receptor gene is put in its place. And so that when you give those back to a patient, they shouldn't really be able to cause graft-versus-host disease because they lack a T-cell receptor, but they should be able to launch a T-cell-versus-cancer effect because they have the chimeric antigen receptor, which will recognize an antigen on the surface of the tumor cell. So let me ask even a more basic question. Whether it be our own surveillance against cancer or transplant, allotransplant, or CAR-T, it sounds like it's T-cell-based. Is there anything else, or is this a T-cell phenomenon? No, it's a great question, and so this is not limited to T-cells. There is, we know that NK cells have natural abilities, no pun intended, as they're natural killer cells, to recognize and eliminate cancer cells as well. That's part of our sort of host, sort of native immune surveillance. And now people are using NK cells to fight cancer as well. And so uh, you can harvest NK cells from the patient, from a healthy donor, from umbilical cord blood, and actually harvest them and either grow them in certain cytokines so that they are stimulated before reinfusion. So not genetically modified, but just stimulated to be able to more effectively eliminate cancer cells. Or they can be genetically modified with a chimeric antigen receptor on their surface to target specific types of cancers. So NK cells can be genetically modified to express a CAR on their surface, or they can just be grown in a certain cytokine environment to be effective anti-cancer cells. And then they're reinfused to the, into the patient very much in the same way that CAR T cells are. People are also looking at macrophages. I think we've seen some drugs that are sort of like checkpoint inhibitors for macrophages. These are drugs that target CD47 and take the breaks off of macrophages and actually sort of stimulate the host innate immune response against cancer cells as well. And these have had activities in lymphoma and leukemias, and people are looking at, you know, whether we can actually use macrophages as an adoptive cell therapy as well. So I just have to repeat that back, make sure I got it. Not only CAR-T, but CAR-macrophage, macrophage CAR-NK uh, cell. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, so there are NK cells, CAR-NK cells, unmodified macrophages, and then CAR-macrophages. Yeah. All are in development at this point. <laughs> so looking back on allotransplant, might the benefit of allotransplant be all of the above? It's obviously not CAR-related but macrophage and NK cell and T cell, et cetera. Yes, I mean, that's certainly true. I think the donor stem cells give rise to a whole host of immune effector cell subtypes that can have activity against a cancer cell. And we think that many of them are important, but we certainly know that T cells are a principal driver of a graft versus cancer or leukemia or lymphoma effect. And they're also the principal driver of graft-versus-host disease, which has been really the major limitation of allogeneic stem cell transplant for patients. So even for patients who are, you know, essentially cured of their cancer following an allogeneic stem cell transplant, the treatment-related uh, mortality can be as high as 10 to 15%. 
And not to mention the morbidity associated with severe Graffers-Host disease that isn't fatal. So that has been a major limitation. You know, it's been very, very difficult to divorce that Graffers-Host effect from the Graffers-Leukemia or lymphoma effect that we hope to achieve with allo transplant. So this may be a difficult question, but if you had to project forward 10, 20, 30 years, will allo transplant be something that we look back and say, wow, it really was a good thing, but we're not doing it much anymore? Yeah, I mean, I think if we're thinking that far out into the future, I mean, I certainly hope that's the case. I think that means that we'll sort of have cracked finding the right antigen for diseases like acute myeloid leukemia and other types of blood cancers for adoptive cell therapy to target. I think that's a major limitation right now of CAR T cells and other engineered cell therapies for the immunologic treatment of various blood cancers. Similarly, we don't have effective targets in T cell lymphoma or T-cell leukemias. And so I think that the other downside of some of these adoptive cell therapies like CAR T-cells and CAR NK cells is, of course, persistence of the adoptive cell therapy. So we are not sure that these cells, even though it's a living therapy and we reinfuse them and they have the capacity to sort of form an immune memory, um, we're not sure that they are effectively targeting their target years down the line. So they don't necessarily allow for indefinite surveillance of a disease relapse the way that allergies genetic stem cell transplant does. But I do think that that is a problem we can solve. I think once we learn from these first generation of therapies, why patients relapse, the next generation of therapies will be engineered in such a way that will allow for potentially lifelong immune surveillance. And I'm hopeful that we'll figure out how, you know, the best targets to go after in diseases like AML and T-cell leukemias and lymphomas. Sure. Let's really focus then on CAR-T now. Tell us about CAR-T, the structure, how it's engineered, and how it's manufactured. All of the CAR-T cells that are currently approved by the FDA are derived from the patient's own T cells. So the patients undergo a process of leukophoresis. Usually it takes one day, a couple of hours, hooked up to the phoresis machine. And then those T cells are sent to a laboratory where they are genetically modified. And this usually involves a retrovirus or a lentivirus for transfection. And what those viruses are introducing into the cell is a gene for the chimeric antigen receptor. And it's called a chimeric antigen receptor because it really is a chimera between an antibody molecule. So the extracellular portion of the receptor is the FC variable fragment of an antibody molecule that is what actually has tumor specificity. So for most of the CARs that are FDA approved, that's either CD19 for B-cell leukemias and lymphomas or BCMA for multiple myeloma. And then the other part of the chimera are T-cell activating molecules, and those sit actually inside the cell. So all of the CARs that we're talking about today have a T-cell activating molecule called CD3-zeta, And then what we know from early clinical trials is that was not sufficient to lead to T-cell activation upon reinfusion into the patient. So a second T-cell activating molecule or a co-stimulatory molecule was added to the receptor. That makes up what we call the second generation CARS. And that molecule is either generally CD28 or 41BB. And so you need that sort of extra on signal to really ignite the T cell to to kill the cell that it's bound to when the immunoglobulin portion of the molecule binds to the tumor antigen. 
So once those cells are generated and expanded to cell dose, the cells are shipped back to the cancer center. The patient undergoes a couple of days of lymphodepleting chemotherapy, which is not meant to treat the underlying cancer. It's meant to actually lymphodeplete the patient so that the cytokines are revved up to support lymphocyte activation and proliferation. And then we give the T cells back to the patient. And then after infusion, we monitor the patients very, very closely for the side effects of T cell activation, principally cytokine release syndrome, as well as neuro toxicity. I want to go back a little bit. To be honest, is really interesting for me as a non-transplanter and non-CAR T provider. So it almost sounds like there's three loci here. One is the antigen, CD19, BCMA, and the second is then two T-cell activators. Is that fair to say? Yes, and they're linked by that antibody molecule that recognizes the tumor antigen. So the tumor antigen is on the surface of the cancer cell, and then the extracellular portion is a portion of an antibody molecule that binds to the tumor antigen. And then there are the two um, sort of on switches, so to speak, the T-cell activating molecules that are on the intracellular portion of that chimeric antigen receptor. So one of the things that I think has become apparent in recent years is tumor heterogeneity. And with that in mind, do this, these CAR Ts, which have two T cell stimulators, will they still stimulate a, a T cell that has just one of those? Is there a little bit of flexibility? Will they only turn on T cells that have all of the above, all three? So this is all one molecule. So any cell that's been transfected with the gene has to have all three components because it's one molecule. So there will be no transfected T cell or engineered T cell that will only have some different permutation of these molecules. It'll all have all three. But in terms, you raise a good point, which is the tumor heterogeneity conundrum. So CD19 has been sort of the perfect target for CAR T cells because it is vital for B-cell malignancies uh, to survive, and so it's not easily lost. It's present on all or most of the cancer cells, and it's not present on normal healthy cells other than normal healthy B-cells in such a way that an immune attack would lead to unacceptable toxicity. We do know that a consequence of CD19-directed CAR T-cells is B-cell aplasia, but we can monitor immunoglobulin levels in patients after they get CAR T-cells and replete them with IVIG if needed. And so patients can survive and be free of infection by that strategy. But what we do know that uh, CD19 is expressed variably on the surface of these cancer cells and that there are some cancer cells that don't necessarily lose CD19, but the CD19 mRNA undergoes alternative splicing so that the part of the protein that the CAR can recognize and bind to is lost or is not expressed. And we still see complete responses in patients with low levels of CD19 expression on their tumors or even sometimes with CD19 loss. And we think that may be because the car is sort of the Trojan horse. It gets to the tumor microenvironment, it interacts with the tumor, but then it recruits a whole host of immune cells, some of these NK cells, the macrophages, other T cells that are within the tumor, and that those T cells, which may not necessarily have to have specificity for CD19, can then sort of complete the job, so to speak. And so it's a fascinating aspect of CAR T cells is that the tumor specificity sort of ignites the flame, but the rest of the immune system may actually do the dirty work. Ooh, so I want to go back to that because that is a, you know, I love analogies personally. 
and I try to use them with patience. Okay, so let's dissect this a little bit. What ignites the flame and what is the flame? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so I mean, I think the flame is the totality of the immune response against the cancer, but it's all of the cancer cells, right? And so what the CAR T cells may do is they may get to the tumor, they may bind to tumor cells that have high expression of the target, so CD19 in the example that we're talking about right now, but then there may be cells right next to it that have low level CD19 expression or no CD19 expression whatsoever. Those cells obviously won't be killed by the CAR T cell, right? but because the CAR T cell has interacted with the cell next to it and been, been activated and released uh, inflammatory cytokines and stimulating cytokines for the immune system, there are cells within the tumor microenvironment, macrophages, NK cells, and other tumor infiltrating infiltrating lymphocytes, which by themselves have not been effective in curtailing the cancer, but which can be activated under the right cytokine environment to cause an anti-tumor effect. And so the ignition is the CAR T cell binding to the CD19 high tumor cells and then the subsequent cytokine release, and then causing the actual flame, the recruitment of other immune cells that are already there to do the rest of the work. All right. So let me paraphrase it for my benefit, because it's an interesting thought. Let me see if this is true or false. Some of the cancer cells don't have the targets, but they get wiped out anyways because of this more generalized kind of infiltration of the tumor by our immune system. Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly right. All right. And honestly, how exciting it is. I want to ask you, because I want to make sure I understand, why does the B-cell response drop off? Why do immunoglobulin levels drop? So these T-cells will target any cell that has the antigen on its surface, right? So CD19 is a antigen that's on the surface of cancerous B-cells, but it's also on the surface of all of our healthy B-cells as well. And so when you infuse these T-cells into the patient, they will interact with the cancer cells, but they will also interact with healthy B-cells and lead to B-cell aplasia. And B-cells are the cells that make immunoglobulins, which are part of the way our immune system recognizes pathogens and flags them for removal by our immune system. Children can be born with B-cell aplasia because of genetic syndromes, and they can live healthily into adulthood with intravenous infusions of immunoglobulins that are derived from healthy donors to essentially give them that part of their immune system back. And so when you give a patient CD19-directed CAR T-cells, yes, you, you hope you kill all the cancerous B-cells, but a byproduct is that you'll also kill the healthy B-cells as well. Um, and we can monitor patients after CAR T-cell infusion for levels of their immunoglobulins. And when they fall below a certain level, we can give them back those immunoglobulins, which are essentially derived from healthy donors, to boost their immune system and, and you know make sure that they're not missing that important function of their immune system. Very interesting. But what are, at the present time, what are the approved indications? And for that matter, what are some of the most interesting clinical trials in CAR-T for you as an investigator? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, there are really two targets that are for CAR-T cells that 
are currently FDA approved. So one is CD19. So those are CAR T cells that target CD19, which have been approved for the treatment of B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia, both in children and in adults, as well as a variety of uh, B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas. So diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma, as well as mantle cell lymphoma. The BCMA CARs are CARs that are designed to target malignant plasma cells, which are the cancerous cells and multiple myeloma, and we have CAR T-cells approved for multiple myeloma as well. Now, in all of these instances, the CAR T-cells are approved for multiply relapsed disease. So for instance, for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, they're approved for the third line and beyond. For follicular lymphoma, they're also approved for the third line and beyond. For multiple myeloma, they're approved for fifth line and beyond. So some of the more interesting clinical trials were uh, presented at ASH this last December, which actually were random trials looking at some of the FDA-approved CAR T-cells for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the third line and beyond and looking at moving them up a line of therapy. So taking patients with high-risk relapsing diffuse large B-cell lymphoma after frontline therapy, and that was defined as patients who either grew through frontline therapy or who relapsed within the first year of that frontline therapy, and randomize them to either CAR T-cells versus standard second-line therapy, which if effective would have led to an autologous stem cell transplant. And there were three clinical trials that were presented at ASH this year, two of which were positive. So two of which showed that CAR T-cells outperformed second-line chemotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant for these high-risk relapsing diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients. The third trial was not positive, but we expect that this will lead to the approval of CAR T-cells in an earlier line of therapy. So that's pretty exciting. I think we're starting to see that we can save patients from ineffective chemotherapy by moving these effective therapies up earlier in their treatment. By the way, you know, that's like a showstopper. <laughs> How interesting. And I really appreciate the update. I was not at ASH. But so patient gets treated for large cell lymphoma, which unfortunately is a fairly common disease. Thankfully, so many patients are cured. But the patient who relapses within a year typically would get a salvage regimen and then an auto, maybe an aloe. And, and you're saying again that at least this data shows that uh, CAR-T may be a better choice. Yeah, I mean, I think it shows that it is a better choice because it was a randomized study where patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to either CAR-T or uh, second-line chemotherapy. And we know that the standard of care has about a 20 to 30% long-term remission rate. Uh, And we know that CAR-T in the third line has a 40 plus percent long-term remission rate. So it wasn't a stretch to think that this would outperform, but in a randomized way where you control for patient selection biases and all the rest of it, two different trials showed that CAR-T outperformed standard of care. Wow. And, you know, it is truly practice changing. So along those lines, when should patients be referred for CAR-T consultation? Yeah, this is a really important question because as a lymphoma doctor, I can tell you that only about a quarter to a third of patients who are eligible for CAR-T with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are being referred for CAR-T cells presently. So we are really sort of underreaching the patients who could benefit from this therapy. So I think it's really important to refer patients one line before CAR-T cell therapy is indicated. 
that differs from disease to disease. You know, obviously any patient who relapses with ALL uh, should be referred for consideration of CAR T-cell therapy. Patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma at the time of first relapse or primary refractory disease should be referred. Patients with follicular lymphoma should generally be referred, I think, if they have high-risk disease, which is really defined as early relapsing disease, but otherwise should be referred when they've relapsed a second time. And then patients with mantle cell lymphoma should also be referred, usually in first relapse. The important thing to know is that eligibility for CAR T-cell therapy is not the same as eligibility for transplant. So there's no upper age limit. We've taken patients safely through CAR T-cell therapy well into their 80s. There's sort of a more liberal allowance for low kidney function or decreased heart function. You know, patients do not have to be in remission. In fact, patients should be in relapse when they go to CAR T-cell therapy. I think the take-home is if a patient sort of is approaching needing the FDA label for the therapy, they should be referred for consideration because many patients that you historically would have not thought were be, would be eligible because of medical comorbidities or because of age for autotransplant are still eligible for CAR T-cell therapy. And so that discussion and that decision should really be in the hands of the CAR T-cell treatment center. So over-refer yeah, yeah. rather than under-refer because we're certainly under-treating patients right now. Yeah, and, I, and thank you for sharing that. The toxicities of aloe transplant are obviously formidable. And when I was a fellow, mortality was close to 40 or 50%. Morbidity was higher. Obviously, it's much lower now. I mean, you were talking about 10% mortality, but it took a long time to manage the toxicities and it keeps getting even better and better. With CAR-T, it sounds like your progress has been a lot faster in managing toxicities. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I mean, it's sort of a less toxic therapy in general. So as opposed to allogeneic stem cell transplant, where the risk of these toxicities exists both acutely and also chronically, most of the CAR T-cell therapy toxicity happens in the first one to four weeks after the T-cell infusion. And there's really very little long-term risk following CAR T-cell therapy. The two toxicities that we're most worried about in that one to four week period are cytokine release syndrome, which is the release of cytokines from these activated T-cells that can lead to a cytokine storm. And then the second toxicity we worry about is a neurologic toxicity, which usually happens a little bit after cytokine release syndrome. It doesn't happen in everybody. It can be quite mild or it can be quite severe. Thankfully, both of these toxicities have a very low mortality risk. It's 1% or less for both of them. And that risk does vary from disease to disease that you're treating and from product to product that you're using. But while there's a very low risk for fatal complications, these uh, risks can be difficult both for the patient as well as their family to sort of witness and endure. Thankfully, though, early in the use of CAR T-cell therapy, we thought that if we gave patients immunomodulatory agents, things that would kind of dampen down that cytokine storm or steroids to treat the neurologic toxicity, that we could potentially impair the activity of the CAR T-cells. And thankfully, what we've learned, and as you alluded to very, very quickly, is that the use of those agents doesn't necessarily decrease the efficacy of the therapy. And so now we are using them earlier and more aggressively. And so we're seeing patients do better after CAR T-cell therapy with less severe cytokine release syndrome and a lower incidence and less severe incidence of neurologic toxicity. And so on a whole, I think you're absolutely right. We've made progress much more quickly, but we're also starting with a therapy that I think is generally less dangerous.
which I may have to say as a fellow, I remember, you know, one of the first lecture I heard on aloe transplant. And I mean, this is a long time ago. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I hope this is replaced (laughs) because it, you know, and this is a long time ago because it was all about toxicities. How wonderful to have a therapy that's less toxic and doesn't have that long-term sort of risk to it. I want to ask you a couple of quick questions related to CAR-T. Solid tumors, because aloe does not seem to work very well in breast cancer and lung cancer and colon cancer. We don't do it. How about CAR-T? What do you see as the possible role? Yeah, so I think um, I'm very optimistic about the eventual role for CAR-T and other engineered cell therapies for solid tumors. I think there are some hurdles that we need to overcome before we get to the success that we're seeing in blood cancers. So one is finding the right tumor antigen, because it's very difficult to find a tumor antigen on the surface of a colon cancer cell, for instance, that's not also present on all of the other cells of the colon and is necessary for that colon cancer cell to survive, right? That's, you know, omnipresent and necessary for the colon cancer cell to survive. So finding the right tumor antigen is one issue. And so what people are doing to try to overcome that is actually developing CAR T cells that target not just one tumor antigen, but multiple tumor antigens. So Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. unleashing a kind of a a diffuse army of immune cells. The other is trying to get the cells actually to reach the tumor itself, right? So it's pretty easy to get lymphocytes into a lymphocyte environment. So to get lymphocytes into the bone marrow and lymph nodes and places that lymphocytes like to traffic to, but to get patients into a a colon cancer tumor or a lung cancer tumor is a little bit more difficult. And so people are, Mm -hmm. are engineering these T cells so that they express you know, chemokine and integrin receptors and things like that to try to help the T cells traffic into the tumor. And then finally, when they do get to the tumor, many of these solid tumors have a really inhibitory tumor microenvironment, one that would be really hard for the T cell to get activated once it reaches. And so people are looking at sort of what we call armored CARs, which are CAR T cells that actually self-secrete inflammatory cytokines to change the tumor microenvironment into a more pro-inflammatory environment to allow better T cell activation. So I think those are all strategies that are being investigated right now. And, you know, I, like I said, I am hopeful that we're going to get there. I think we're essentially learning from almost every patient that we treat in liquid tumors and blood cancers. And I think that knowledge is going to allow us to engineer these cells to better tackle solid tumors and all the hurdles that solid tumors pose for us. I want to share with anyone listening, but the big smile on my face, because it, it is truly exciting, you know, when you talk about armored <laughs> CAR T cells, but it's a fascinating concept. Karen, I want to ask you, because you're practicing this day-to-day in a big academic center, what are some of the barriers for patients accessing this incredible form of therapy? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I think one major barrier, of course, is that these therapies are really limited to tertiary cancer centers that have experience with stem cell transplant. And those centers tend to be concentrated in certain parts of the country. So there are whole sections of the country where there is not a CAR T cell uh, treatment center uh, in close proximity. And what that means for the patient, of course, is that the patient needs to essentially relocate with a caregiver to someplace far away from home for the entirety of their treatment. So that's usually there's a short visit for the T-cell collection and the patients can go back home. But then there's a longer visit around the time of the T-cell infusion 
medication and you know the FDA mandates that the patients need to be within two hours of the treating center for up to four weeks after the CAR T-cell infusion. So right. I think that is a major barrier, right? It's just logistics and lodging and food and you know needing a caregiver during that time. And so that can be a challenge for patients. I think many patients hear some of the toxicities and you know the cytokine release syndrome and the neurologic toxicity and patients as well as referring providers hear about them and think that they're an unacceptable risk, although I really would emphasize that we've gotten significantly better at treating them and patients do make full recoveries. And then, you know, I think the other thing is insurance coverage. This is a very expensive therapy. The price tag for the therapy, it's the infusion itself, the CAR T cells themselves are very expensive. And then the care that we have to give to patients is very expensive. And I think patients as well as referring providers often think that the sort of cost of care and insurance approval is something that they're going to need to navigate. But I would emphasize that all CAR T cell treatment centers have a whole host of people whose full-time job is to figure out the insurance question and make sure that nobody gets a a bill that they can't afford. And so, you know, my hope is that at least get the patients in to talk to somebody. We will take care of the insurance authorization. We can outline what our plans are for lodging and food and all the rest of it. And we can provide reassurance about how we manage some of these toxicities. I think if you can get patients in the door, uh, we can provide a lot of reassurance for some of these things that are perceived barriers but not necessarily true barriers. So I have to say one of the things that interests me, I think even more and more as my decades and years of practice have increased, but let me ask you, when you meet with a new patient who's come to you about CAR-T, how do you counsel them? And what do you discuss in terms of the risk of mortality, the risk of morbidity, and the possibility of cure? How do you frame all that? Yeah, that's another wonderful question. And I often find that I focus a lot on the toxicity. And at the very end, I say, I've just focused on all of the negative aspects. And let me tell you why this is worth it. Yeah. So I think in terms of the toxicity, obviously, we talk about cytokine release syndrome and we talk about the neurologic toxicity. I do sort of paint kind of worst case scenarios for patients, but then specifically a degree of cytokine release syndrome that could put an unacceptable stress on one's heart or kidneys or lungs or a neurologic toxicity that could lead to swelling of the brain and potential fatal side effects. But I emphasize that that is the under 1% risk and that the over 99% of over 99% of patients may have those toxicities, but will make a full, both uh, systemic as well as neurologic recovery. And that for the vast majority of patients, this will amount to a flu-like syndrome for a couple of days, and then a period of sort of brief confusion. For patients where those syndromes last a little bit longer, they may need rehab following their CAR T-cell therapy. Uh, but for patients who recover quickly, I, we've had patients who have been back at work at four weeks after CAR T-cell cell therapy. So I try to portray the entire spectrum and emphasize sort of what's the more common pathway as opposed to the uncommon pathway. And then again, I'm always astounded that I forget to mention that the reason that you do all of this and that you risk some of these toxicities is because of how effective these therapies are. So, I mean, patients who I, the first patients I put on CAR T-cell trials for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma were patients that I would have had a discussion about hospice versus going 
going on this trial. Uh, and it's like a Lazarus effect, right? These patients literally could have been admitted to hospice and potentially could have passed away within weeks. And instead, you know, within two weeks, their LDH is normal. They're walking out of bed, have no more pain. And many of them are alive without disease relapses four and five years later at this point. And so obviously we dwell on the positive as well. <laughs> sure. And you know what? You beat me to it because I was going to ask you that. How long is your longest CAR-T survivor? So we started doing this in 2015, and our very first patient is still in remission. This is a patient who had had, I think, four prior lines of chemotherapy and was growing through a fifth by the time he went on to CAR T-cell therapy, and we're in 2022 now, so he's uh, approaching seven years and still in remission. It's pretty amazing. And I think we all try to temper our tremendous enthusiasm and joy with caution, too. And you obviously really do that. And anyways, congratulations to you and to your patient and to the program. With all that in mind, I would like to say a couple other words. Firstly, this has been a wonderful session and it's totally energizing. And I want to thank Dr. Karen Jacobson, who's an assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Karen, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is a really exciting new therapy, and I love to get to share it with people. Yeah, and you did. It was wonderful. For all of you, I want to thank you for joining us today. For additional CAR T-cell therapy resources, be sure to check out the LLS website, lls.org slash CART therapy, which is C-A-R-T, second word therapy, T-H-E-R-A-P-Y. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. Please be sure to check out our upcoming program about the role of CAR T cell therapy for refractory B cell lymphoma, improving access and outcomes. And that will be coming out in 2022 in February. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. I want to say happy and healthy New Year wishes. This is the beginning of 2022, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.